Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I am in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're doing okay. I have a great episode for you today. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. My guest today is Lydia Kiesling, author of a new novel called mobility. I felt sort of guilty while writing the book because I think it is a reflection of like sort of the cynicism and like some of just the despair that you know I have felt in the last you know five years that I've been writing it and sort of seeing you know it's like a Trump era book even if Trump is like not really mentioned that much in it but and it's also a pandemic era book and just seeing how like contentious and awful it was to try and just like make decisions about public health and the public good and how all of those involved like so much kicking and screaming and fighting and even you know fighting among people who like ostensibly agree about that like COVID is bad and dangerous. I think yeah the book is really inflected by that. All right that was Lydia Kiesling. Her new novel is called Mobility available now from Crooked Media Reads. Mobility is about a young girl named Bunny Glenn. We meet her at the beginning of the novel in Azerbaijan in the late 1990s. She is an American there with her family. Her father is a foreign service officer, and they are stationed in Baku. This is after the Soviet Union has dissolved, the Cold War has ended, and there is underway a frenzied attempt to extract and capitalize on the oil that exists under the Caspian Sea. Mobility then follows Bunny from her adolescence in Azerbaijan to middle age, from Baku to Athens, Greece, to Houston, Texas, where she ends up working in the oil industry and things sort of come full circle. And that's just a thumbnail. This is an excellent novel that encompasses quite a lot, including the oil trade, or I guess they call it the energy space these days, global capital, class, power, politics, consumption, desire, all of these things. But most importantly, it's a totally engrossing story. It is deeply rooted in the personal. 
It examines its larger themes through the life of its heroine, Bunny Glenn, who is 100% human and relatable and a kind of perfect character through which to explore this terrain. This is a superb book. I loved it, and I had a great time catching up with Lydia Kiesling. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. So before we get started, I do want to remind you about my email newsletter. It goes out once a week. It is free. You can subscribe over at otherppl.com or bradlesty.com. I would love it if you would sign up for my newsletter. It's pretty straightforward. I let you know about the latest episodes of the show, and I share links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So that's it. If you would like to hear from me in your inbox once a week, go sign up for the newsletter at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. Likewise, you can join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going, show your support. There are prizes, there's merchandise, there are things you can get. It's a sliding scale. Check it out over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. All right, so my guest once again is Lydia Kiesling. Her debut novel, The Golden State, was published back in 2018. And in that same year, she was a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree, as well as a finalist for the VCU Cabell First Novelist Award. She was also longlisted for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. Lydia's writing has appeared in a variety of publications, including the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker Online, and The Cut. And I'm just very pleased to have her back on this program. She last appeared in November of 2018 in episode 551 when she was on tour for the Golden State. And now here she is making her triumphant return. So let's get to the conversation. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Lydia Kiesling. And her new novel, One More Time, is called mobility the first like first first origin i think i wanted to write a foreign service novel so not necessarily about adult life in the foreign service because that's something i don't have experience of but growing up in the foreign service so i you know i'm a foreign service brat and we moved around a lot when i was a kid we lived in a few different countries and you know the older i get and the further i move away from that experience the more you know you think about i think it's normal to sort of evaluate your childhood and adolescence at sort of, sort of certain stages as you move further and further away. And so I did want to find a way to write about that. But my sort of earliest paragraphs that I wrote, which were basically someone who is like Bunny um, riding in an airplane back and forth uh, from her school to her family's overseas post thing. Bunny being the heroine of yes. mobility. Bunny Glenn. Yes, Bunny Glenn. So th- that's where I started. And the tone was pretty, w- was sort of like a nasty satirical tone at first, which was really like not pleasing for, for me as a writer, like as I was reading it back, or I think for any other potential reader. And I didn't really have a place to go with it necessarily, you know, th- because part of why I wanted to write about that is because of a sort of like nostalgia for that period of my life and those very specific feelings that I just am very far removed from now. 
But you can't really think about that type of upbringing without considering its kind of broader context, which is like being an American, like a representative of America, um, you know, moving around like in service of sort of American service, I, I guess. So that I think was really taking over and kind of poisoning is not exactly the right word, but that was very much part of like how I was writing. And, and I realized I, I just needed something bigger. And then when I was thinking about the kind of geopolitical currents of the region, one of the, the when my family was posted to Yerevan, Armenia in 1997, and I was thinking about that region and that time, the oil piece really kept jumping out at me from, especially from Azerbaijan, which is the neighboring country of Armenia. And so that's when it turned into like, then I went in this big rabbit hole and really did, I was like, I want to write the great oil novel. Then I got completely overwhelmed. <laughs> um, and, and it took, I'd say like a couple of years to sort of figure out how to redirect, like sort of all the oil things that I was learning but put them in that original frame that had compelled me, which is to kind of talk about that experience of living overseas in a in a very particular context, which is the U.S. Foreign Service. Yeah, that makes that makes like creative sense to me. I've had like some semblance of that experience in the past, where you have this thing that's sort of like the kernel or like the seed of the book. And it's the thing that you want to write about, but it doesn't actually work unless you combine it with other stuff Yes. or like fit it inside of a bigger frame. And it must've been thrilling to you as you started to dig around and you started to kind of land on these notions to realize how your childhood in, is it in the Caucasus? Is that how you pronounce it? I'm so bad mm -hmm. at that part of the world, but you, you know, you were posted or you're, uh, family was posted in these places, which I think most people, especially most Americans, don't have a great frame of reference for, which is part of the fun of this novel, is getting to sort of travel around. It's like you're great at writing place and you're great, like you get to go to Greece, it's lovely. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you had fun writing that too, you know, and the food and everything. So, but to realize that as a kind of happenstance almost, you were living in such close proximity to this region that is so vitally important to the energy trade or what do they call it the energy space these days or whatever you know yeah it used to be called the oil patch or the, the oil complex but yeah. yeah now i think energy space has a has a a, a friendlier ring to it i was gonna say space. yeah it's less menacing it's less yeah. it's better better branding but you know there you were as a youngster living in this place which i got a I got a cop to it. I didn't realize the importance of Baku. How do you pronounce it? Is it Baku? Like, I want to say there was like a, a description of the pronunciation of Baku in the book. And it, the U is like an I, like, I don't want to screw it up. Well, I, I, I wouldn't like, I, I don't venture the, the true pronunciation, but so, you know, the like kind of Americanized or Anglicized, I guess, pronunciation is Baku, but the, the way that it's rendered and the, it's not a U in Azerbaijani. It's like an I without a dot and it was just more of like a, a sound, okay. um, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to try and <laughs> try and do it. But yeah. So, and I should say like, we, we were not posted in Baku. So that was like, I was sort of vicariously learning and, and it was like a stretch for me at first because it did, as I was learning about the region, 
I was really compelled by those sort of very same oil narratives that because there was a huge journalism boom in the mid 90s. Um, you know, it was the, the front page of the New York Times magazine had a it was a piece by Jeffrey Goldberg that and the title was Getting Crude in Baku. And there were lots of people doing like documentaries and, and doing kind of on the ground reporting. There was a feature in Soldier of Fortune magazine um, that I I bought on eBay. (laughs) Um, So clearly, it was a very compelling sort of place and narrative to a lot of journalists at the time. And so then I had this like later second sort of that same impulse to be like, oh my gosh, there's so much interesting stuff happening. Like, this is a storyteller's dream. A sort of like almost like extractive impulse, (laughs) the same way the oil men are going there right but yeah it's a fascinating place and you know with a really long i mean every every place is fascinating every place has history but there were just like a lot of very kind of consequential events and people that really kind of cohered in this place in a way that was very interesting to me um so it was yeah it was really kind of exciting to read about and and think about well, there's a lot of oil under the Caspian Sea. Yes, there sure is. That's the reason why it's yes. such an interesting place to so many people. And it has this kind of wild west, if that's a way to put it, oh, uh, yes. air that, to it. That was frequently um, deployed as, a, as a, an analogy in sort of the writing of that time period. What is, what is, I'm, I'm totally blanking, but they're like the way that these deals were sort of coming together during that stretch of time when it was sort of anything goes and you had these people who were getting smaller percentages or smaller cuts that were still enormously lucrative. Yes. You know, these people would become fabulously wealthy relatively quickly. Yes. Ju- just from having like a 2% stake in some oil interest and suddenly it would just explode. Yes. Um, so there's a, w- one of the books that really kind of got me going on this topic is called The Oil and the Glory by a journalist named Steve Levine. I'm not sure if it's Levine or Levine um, because I've only seen it written, but it's an incredible book and it is all about those characters, um, you know, because in some cases it's like the big players who are coming. So, you know, Chevron and BP especially were sending a lot of people to do all of this, like very furious kind of backroom deals, um, particularly in Kazakhstan and in Azerbaijan. But then there were also these people who just like have a sense that something's going on and there's probably a lot of opportunities. And, Um, There was one person in particular who, I I think he was from Scotland, but he showed up and just kind of maneuvered his way into some very, like, important rooms in the newly independent Azerbaijan and just got himself in on a deal that did, and people, I think people were calling him, like, Mr. Two and a Half Percent, because there's a a very famous person who was known as Mr. Five Percent, who's an Armenian Ottoman citizen, Kalus Gulbenkian. I believe it's his name. And he like very famously brokered the sort of oil contracts around Basra and in Iraq or what is now Iraq. So he was called Mr. 5%. And so the sort of joke was about this Scottish guy. He was like Mr. 2.5%. But still just like, yeah, enormous wealth was being extracted by a very ragtag cast of like sometimes, yeah, very like sort of institutional corporate people, but then also just like guys. <laughs> just they, these, these guys though are fascinating. Yes. <laughs> like the, the kind of like chutzpah that you have to have to just show up in this place and weasel your way into some room and then 
talk well enough and I guess give off some sort of vibe of competence yes. <laughs> that convinces people to cut you in on the deal. I mean, it's just so, it's so far removed from who I am. Yes. Like, I, I'm not that guy. I'm, I'm Mr. Negative 50%. <laughs> I'm, I'm Mr. Who the fuck is this guy? Get him out of here. You're you Mr. Know? Like, I will give you money. <laughs> yes. I'm Mr. Like, do you need anything? Can I help? <laughs> do you guys like poetry? You know, and, uh, but it is, I mean, it's wild how like huge concentrations of wealth and the way that like business cycles work and how these hives of money and ambition sort of rise and fall. But, you know, we're talking about all of this and it's very vital to the book and it's very well rendered in the book and necessarily so, but it should be said to listeners who have not yet had a chance to read Mobility that this is very much Bunny's story. Uh, what I love too about Bunny as it pertains to the global energy trade is that she is a proxy for the reader in terms of her inability to grasp it. Like even somebody who works within the business has really no idea how the business works. And there's this great term. It's what is it called? The hyper object? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> uh, is, that, is that a real term? It is. It's coined by the scholar philosopher Timothy Morton, who I believe is at Rice University. And they wrote a book called Hyper Objects and coined the term and sort of the idea. And they have yeah, a lot of very sort of influential writing and thinking about, you know, petroscapes and fossil fuels. And so, yeah, I definitely cribbed that from them. Okay. And so, and the hyper object is essentially this thing that kind of touches everything, even if Big people don't realize sticky. it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, you're drinking water out of a plastic water bottle. Like the hyper object is upon you. you know? like, <laughs> but it's like, it's a great term. I'm going to reuse it, you know, and it's a, it's a way in for readers, you know, it humanizes things. And Bunny is a great character who, you know, is kind of grown up uh, in a privileged way, you know, having all of this, like, uh, like all of these foreign adventures as a youngster, having such close proximity to like powerful and interesting people different cultures. Like it's a great education. I felt some envy. I was like, oh, that's such a cool way to grow up, even if it might be difficult at times. And there might be this kind of persistent sense of dislocation. But I think Bunny is also somebody who thinks of herself as an optimist and especially in her youth, just sort of likes to see things through rose colored glasses or likes to hope for the best. Uh, and this is a, this is a coming of age story in that way and kind of a tale of come up in even, you know, as this like privileged, optimistic American comes face to face with maybe harder realities that yes. she wasn't prepared, that she wasn't prepared to necessarily encounter. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting too, how, you know, it all comes full circle, like her childhood and then her job sort of takes her back to uh, the, the places of her childhood and it's very beautifully realized and I couldn't help but note knowing you a little bit and gleaning like your politics from social media that like Bunny is she shares some things with you but she diverges from you in many significant ways too like mm -hmm. you had some fun playing around with her it wasn't like 
this is this is purely like a Lydia no. character. No, she's definitely the way I have come to think of it is that we share a lot of DNA, and I'd say she, in some ways, she's kind of um, like an exorcism of myself of some of the tendencies I as I have grown older and you know there's certain like key points in life I think for you know any person where you kind of look around and have some realizations about where you fit into the world and sort of the systems that run the world for some people you know necessarily those that awareness comes much earlier than for other people but when I especially when I was looking you know writing Bunny's kind of adolescence and like mid-20s I I had a lot of myself in there just sort of like a little bit of drifting, a little bit of, you know, knowing that the world, that there were things in the world that were bad and unfair, but being sort of like, well, like I'm, you know, I just like got to get a job. And then, but yeah, sort of, I wanted, I feel very fortunate and lucky that, you know, over time I have been exposed to people and ideas that really challenged me and, you know, people who I really admire and sort of can look at and say, oh, that's someone who's like, choosing to operate in a different way or like, look, we do have agency. We are able to kind of, I mean, not that I'm some like rabble rouser, but I do think that, yeah, the more you're exposed to new ideas, the more it does kind of shape your politics and your views and your actions. And so I, but I still am very conscious of those parts of myself that were, that did come up in that way as Bunny did. And as a lot of, I think like you know, white millennial women who went to elite educational institutions, like there's some very powerful currents that kind of push you along and that I really, I still am figuring out how to try to kind of untangle myself from. And so I wanted to write, write those and kind of document them and then see, see what, how I would envision sort of someone like me um, who let, who let the current continue to push her, I guess, in that direction. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, one of the questions that this book asks has to do with how one makes one's livelihood, what its impacts are, what the moral implications of those choices are like upon oneself, upon others, upon the world. And, you know, I, I think of, I think of like the, uh, 
there's like this Buddhist thing. It's called like right livelihood. You know, try to make your living in a non-toxic way, like a non-harmful way. And I think that's a, it's a nice idea. You know, it's certainly something to aspire to. But when you're young in particular, or you're in an economic environment like the one that so many millennials were in, when the economy collapsed in 2008, mm-hmm. and you're getting out of college and there's just nothing, yeah. right? Or almost nothing. Sometimes you take what you can get because you're just trying to survive. Most people don't have the time uh, to sit around thinking about the moral implications of how they pay rent. Mm -hmm. They just got to get it done. And yet, I think we need (laughs) to think about these things. And that's kind of the path that I feel like Bunny is on, is going from not really maybe thinking about these things to thinking about them. And then... You know, not to spoil too much, to being confronted with the consequences of maybe most of us not thinking about these things, you know, and eventually it's going to come to bear on all of us. It already is. You know, we're already feeling the consequences of too many people either not caring or not being able to think about the implications of how they are in their bread. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really easy. Sometimes I felt, you know, it's really easy for me to be like, well, I'm a freelance writer, you know, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to just like look at people's LinkedIn profiles and then like shit on them in fiction, basically. Um, and sometimes right. I thought, I mean, one thing that was tough about the book is I'm very, especially because I would, I'm talking about, if I'm talking about a workplace that I'm familiar with. So, you know, when, when Bunny, when Bunny's in her mid twenties, she is in that sort of recession period like desperate looking for a job being like I have an English degree and I don't know how to do anything and you know she ends up working as a temp admin assistant like proofreader in an engineering company and it's one that doesn't do oil and gas but you know that's sort of becomes the renewables renewables well no the first one is just like dams you know dams like nuclear Uh power I mean it's pretty it's it shows you like how arbitrary some of the divisions are but but it also very decidedly like was not oil and gas and, you know, she's just working there. She's a temp. She's, like, reading these reports. She has no idea what they say. Um, so that, that I had that workplace. And I worked, I was a temp at an engineering company in suburban Pennsylvania in the year 2009. So that's, like, very direct experience. But then as I have her move into an oil and gas company, but, yeah, on the renewable side, but it's still 100% a, an oil company, I don't have that experience. And it's very, I felt a lot of, like, anxiety about that. And the natural thing to do would be to like find someone who sort of had a job like the job I was envisioning for Bunny, which is very much sort of like a helper, like kind of combination, like executive assistant, but then also has some agency to like do other things and like make her own, carve out her own little like world and possibilities within this company. And so I would find, I would look, always women like would find people who had sort of jobs like that on LinkedIn, which is really hard, by the way, because LinkedIn does not want you to like anonymously browse people's. <laughs> so I have this like fake LinkedIn account and I would find people and I would really want to talk to them and just be like, what's your day like? Like, tell me, like, let me. But but I couldn't do that because it would be so, then so awkward <laughs> to be like, and here's the book that I wrote about <laughs> right. what, what you're doing. Um, right. So, I mean, one of the things also, yeah, so I felt sort of like some guilt about that because I was like, yeah, it's so easy for me. Like, first of all, the only reason I can be a, you know, full-time freelance writer is because I'm married to someone who has steady employment with a W-2 and health insurance. And like, 
if I was not in that position, then, you know, who knows like what job I would end up. And I, and I worked at, I worked at the, in the UC system, the last full-time job I had was um, in a research center at the University of California, Berkeley, which is like, of course, a wonderful, like flagship premier, like amazing resource. But the politics in there are so nasty. And you do feel like very kind of complicit when you're, especially when you're sort of become like a high paid administrator and like grad students are literally homeless, like literally trying to just get paid a living wage using food pantries. And meanwhile, I'm like doling out the the income from like a huge endowment from Saudi Arabia. Like that's basically like funding all these cushy salaries. Like even in that, like ostensibly sort of like positive, like social good, which is the public university system, there were all kinds of moral compromises that you're making like every single day. So, you know, like just being more exposed to the like oil and gas industry. And like, I went to like an industry event and talked to some of the people there. You do feel kind of like the irrelevance of your own sort of like little moral crusade against it because from their perspective, it's like, well, do you like having electricity? <laughs> like, do you, it's so easy to just be like, we're doing work that is that literally like powers the economy. And in one sense, like they're totally right. But yeah, from my little cave, I get to be like, but also it's bad. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, th- these these are the these are the questions, right? And it's like, well, you could take like a really hardline idealistic stance and say these people should dis you know disentangle themselves from this industry and leave it behind and go on to do something different. But the human reality of the situation is that we need power. We, right now, at least, we need oil and gas still. And if they didn't do the job, if, it, like, if let's say you, or let's just say Bunny, leaves her job, it'll just be filled by somebody else. <laughs> there's a, there's I mean, a million a, girls that would kill for this job. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> It's the truth. It's not going to stay empty. You know, it's not like it's just going to sit there and, and wither. It's somebody else will come right in and do the job and they might not have the same good brain that Bunny has or the same good heart that she has. And so I think like when it comes to the kinds of work that like sort of bridges the divide between like vital and necessary and toxic and harmful, you the best you can kind of do is to have good people in those jobs who, I mean, right? Or, or just <laughs> <No>. to get... <laughs> I think that's what I, I mean, that's what, I think it's so easy. I, I too, like, very sort of easily slide into that and sort of the narratives of, that the oil and gas industry, in many cases, like, is sort of promoting, like, very sagely and astutely. It, it lets you, it lets you, like, slip into that view a little too comfortably. And I certainly do the same thing. But that's why I really, it's like, a novelist can be like, can sort of play with that and, and like, and move around in like the sort of squishy kind of complexity of it. But I also, but I'm like, I really admire the thinkers, you know, and activists and journalists who are like, no, it, it like, it actually, the system has to be like 100% dismantled. And, and some, and some, writers I think are very good at sort of showing how, showing the possibilities of that. Um, I've got an ambulance going by, so sorry if the sound is 
Um, no, it's okay. It felt felt kind of like it felt kind of like like the uh, urgency. <laughs> there's something yeah, something about the urgency of what you're talking about is yes. served by that siren. So, um, but you know, someone like Naomi Klein, you know, her books I think are really great at being like, this is what they want you to think, is that it's sort of like impossible to overturn these systems, but it, but that's not true. It is possible. I'm glad that I'm like I fit very neatly into my sort of role I think as like a novelist because I can just be like well here's all the things I'm noticing but like if someone's like well what's the solution I'll just be like hey that's like that's not my please talk to someone else but there are there are people who are like truly imagining another world and sort of pushing for that and so yeah I mean my my cynicism about the I I, I there I truly think like the oil and gas companies have to be like <laughs> requisitioned and um, redistributed by the state because just the, I mean, first of all, like, sorry, I'm going to rant for like two seconds. It's just, just seeing the way that fundamentally their goal is at odds with our goal. So even I, I think, you know, politicians, it's in their interest to say, you know, we want like cheap, plentiful, accessible energy for everybody. And that's, you know, it's very bad politically if someone's like, suddenly, you know, all their constituents like have no electricity, like the grid goes out. The state ends up somehow being sort of like blamed for that. Even though like oil and gas companies like hugely play a role. But the thing is, oil and gas companies don't want like they want everyone to have energy. Like they want to not be blamed, but they want to make money. Like that is the thing that they want to do more than anything else. And their desire to make money precludes them working in the public interest in any way. So the cynicism of them sort of like putting themselves at the forefront of like the energy transition and sort of saying we are indispensable to this process, even though like there's part of me that's like, well, yes, like my my concerns are irrelevant. They are sort of indispensable because they're so ubiquitous. They're so like present and because of the sort of like hyper object nature of the oil and gas industry. But at the same time, like they engineered their position as such. And a lot of that has to do with kind of narrative and storytelling. And so if it can be, if they can like, if it can be made that way, it can be unmade also. And I sort of like reject, I, I think we have, we have to reject the idea that, that they need to remain like fundamental to this because ultimately they have just proven again and again, they are, they are not acting in the public interest. But yes, I mean, it is really hard because yeah, the more you sort of think of it's easy to get overwhelmed and be like, well, there's so part of how everything is. But, you know, there are people who are thinking about like, well, how do we make it so they're not part of how, yeah. part of how everything well, listen, is. <laughs> I hear you. And I think like when you talk about like the hyper object nature of like or the energy space and you talk about like as a comparison, the hyper object nature of healthcare, just things that touch everybody mm-hmm. and which everybody we all need energy. We all need health care. These are the kinds of things that I think should maybe be divorced from profit motive or like really explicit, serious, hardcore profit motive because that's when things get really ugly. And yeah, they're inhumane. fundamentally incompatible. And we just, all, we live in that dissonance like every day and it creates just such like perversions. And so no wonder everyone is like, oh my God, we're like, yeah. it feels bad. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, you do a great job too in the, in the novel of sort of giving the reader a kind of prismatic perspective on this stuff. I think Sophie 
who is the girlfriend of Bunny's brother, mm-hmm. John. Do mm-hmm. I have this right? Yeah. yeah. So, I like Sophie. Sophie's kind of this like I love Sophie. hot, cool <laughs> Swedish journalist. Yes. <laughs> Smart as a whip. I'm just like, oh, let's hang, you know? And and she uh but she's like, yeah, you know, I think this stuff should be national. I think these uh, oil companies should be nationalized. Mm-hmm. And that's my preference. And then I think at another turn in the novel, there is Charlie, who is this older journalist also, kind of a, a cynic and a great character, you know. And he's like, look, even if you nationalize the big oil companies, these private energy companies are still going to be pumping oil in the dark. And mm-hmm. you're sort of like, oh, shit. You know? <laughs> like, like, how do we get out of this? You know, but it's complicated is the point. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of where I was headed when I was talking about good, you know, good people in bad jobs. Mm-hmm. Even if you even if the, the true answer is we need to dismantle the reality is that it's not going to happen overnight. Yeah, for and sure. And the only way that the only way that it probably happens is if you have people in those jobs who end up agreeing at least in part that it must happen. Mm-hmm. Like we need to work towards some kind of consensus or maybe I'm wrong and like the state can just enforce the law and pass laws and people just have to deal with it, but it's like when you think about like nationalizing healthcare like that's what I, I would love to see universal single payer healthcare. That mm-hmm. seems to me the most sensible and humane and cost effective position. It seems to be borne out by the facts. Like I, it seems like you get better outcomes. It's cheaper. Like what's not to love. Mm-hmm. And yet I think also like, you know, there are lots of people who work in the current system whose lives would be upended by the change and what happens to them. And like, I don't have zero sympathy for them, Yeah, you know, cause I don't think they're all evil people. I just mm-hmm. think like, you know, we have to ultimately do what's best for the most of us. And uh, these kinds of big ticket changes are very difficult to enact, at least here in America. It seems like we have big, we have big challenges when it comes to making these kinds of moves, you know? Yes, I mean, just watching how we do anything with incredible mess and rancor and yeah. Waste. Waste, but change is possible, you know, and it has, it has happened. I mean, it's funny, like, I felt sort of guilty while writing the book because I think it is a reflection of like sort of the cynicism and like some of just the despair that, you know, I have felt in the last, you know, five years that I've been writing it and sort of seeing, you know, it's like a Trump era book, even if Trump is like not really mentioned that much in it. But, and it's also a pandemic era book and just seeing how like contentious and awful it was to try and just like make decisions about public health and the public good and how all of those involved like so much kicking and screaming and fighting and even you know fighting among people who like ostensibly agree about that like COVID is bad and dangerous I think yeah the book is really inflected by that and so sometimes I you know especially you know there's like all these great thinkers like someone like Rebecca Solnit is really out there being like we can't afford like climate doom you know we've got to like promulgate like hope and opportunity and like face it head on and and not just like give up and I really see that and and then so when I'm think right thinking about the novel I'm kind of like the novel's not making that much space for that you know there is like the character of Sophie for she's like someone who really is thinking differently but the way I kind of reconciled myself to that is just like the novel doesn't have to be like a prophecy and I think the novel is a reflection of the very sort of real challenges, like both 
logistically and like ideologically that we're dealing with because like inertia is just like built in and encouraged by our system. So I was just like, you know, my book is not like revolutionary in any sense and it isn't like writing the writing a better future into the page, but it is like a document of what things are like right now if we don't figure something out. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, I'm kind of, as I put it, I'm like, it's, uh, you gotta, I, I had doom in the, doom in the sheets, uh, but action in the streets. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, and the other thing too, is that it's going to be nice to have, I mean, I, I imagine you have to feel good about having written this novel so that your children, potential future grandchildren will read it and at least be like grandma grandma knew what time it was she was at least paying attention right maybe or they'll be like grandma why like why didn't you do something more but i don't know who who knows i'm no but i think like that i don't think so i think that <laughs> what you've done here because this stuff is so difficult to confront and because it's so complex a book like this humanizes it makes it real dimensional accessible in ways that like a documentary even can't or like a frontline expose, you know, as good as frontline is, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I think sometimes people need a, a, a fictionalization of it in order to really get it. So I think this is a very significant contribution. Wow. And, you know, along these same lines of what we're talking about when it comes to these hyper objects, I'm going to keep using that. That's the word of the day uh, to, pay small homage to the late Paul Rubens. Didn't the word of the day, wasn't that a thing on Pee Wee's Playhouse? I think so. Everybody think so. screamed. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, the hyper object nature of the things that we're talking about makes me feel saddened and frustrated by the way in which these issues are so political in our country and in our culture and in our time when they really should not be why do we have so many things that really aren't political issues at all like i don't care what your politics are like the oceans are boiling why is this an argument over politics or healthcare? like yeah. we, we're all going to get sick we're all going to die like can't we have an adult conversation about what what to do about this and uh and yet you know, I mean, literally, literally yesterday I um, was riding in a car on the way to the airport, you know, at six in the morning and it was a, the driver was like, asked me where I was going. And I said, Oh, I'm, you know, going on a work trip. And then eventually he's like, what kind of work do you do? I told him I wrote a book. He asked about the book. I said, you know, it's sort of about the oil and gas industry. And, and then he just went, he was like, well, you know, it's, he said, I'm all about being a good steward of the earth. Like that's important, but you know, so many scientists don't agree. It's like, there's thousands of scientists on one side and then there's thousands of scientists on the other. And I was, I had to take a deep breath and I was like, okay. Um, and I, cause I, I know from like trying to organize for universal preschool that when you talk to someone who says something that you're like, oh my fucking God, that's not true. You, you can't do that. You have to be like, oh, like, tell me more. Like, let me ask questions. So I was like, uh -huh. oh yeah, you know, well actually when, when I was reading about this book, like I used to think that too, which I did not think that, but, um, like actually 
you know, there might have been a time that there was some sort of question about the outcomes, but it's like all the scientists agree now. Um, and I was just trying to, and then I was like, you know, the, like look at this summer right now. It's like the, and I was talking about Florida's ocean water. And but he's like, well, you know, on, I watched a video and the scientist was saying there's enough trees between here and Canada to capture all the carbon in the air. And it's, yeah, it's so hard to just, because, and like thinking about what, and then he said a lot of stuff later on on other topics that made it very clear that he was embedded in like a deep kind of right-wing ecosystem of videos and like media that made me feel like defeated because it was just anything I said, he was like, well, I saw a video that said a different thing. And, you know, there was obviously, I'm not going to like change hearts and minds in this like one conversation. I just tried to be like friendly and like offer a different view and kind of like, say what I had heard or thought and try and not be, not be non-combative. But, but at the same time, you're like, why? Like, it just, it is, it's like you're saying, like, and I did, I said, I said, you know, I said, it's a shame that some of this stuff does feel really political. Like it kind of shouldn't be one political side or another. It's just like, it's too hot. Like people don't have what they need to like live in that kind of heat. Like what, why, why does that need to be part of some like political narrative but yeah it's really terrifying because it's like it, it it's so sort of like encoded as like a left or right issue now and, and so many with regard to so many things that it's like it's hard to even have a conversation people are so like entrenched i feel i feel despair for those of you listening and for lydia you can't see as you were talking i injected myself with morphine off camera <laughs> just to try to not feel the pain of considering <laughs> these kinds of conversations because i mean like what the fuck do you do with that there's thousands of scientists on both sides it's like like this is another hallmark of this era that i don't know if i don't remember anything like this from earlier eras you know I'm, i was born in the 70s so you know i've lived through different political eras and this era is characterized by this like incessant need for false equivalences mm -hmm. that drives me absolutely bonkers like, it's just relentless. It won't stop. Like, <laughs> the people are just determined to be like, there are 1,000 scientists who say that global warming is real and 1,000 scientists who say it's not. And it's like, all right, I'm going to whatever, you know, I don't know what kind of car you were in in this like uh, Uber ride, but I'm imagining you wanted to throw yourself out of the car at speed. Well, I thought of the meme from um, Arrested Development where it's like, Tobias Bluth and it's like there are dozens of us and I'm like those are the those are the scientists that say climate change is not a big deal the one thing I said that actually seemed to like not prompt a like immediate sort of like kind of contradiction I said that what I had learned about oil and gas companies I said that they kind of can see the future better than a lot of us because they spend they have a lot of scientists and they spend a lot of time thinking about it and the fact that oil and gas companies were going all in, in some cases, in renewables, even though they, you know, put it in other wings and they, they don't really necessarily advertise how much they're doing that. But they're investing a lot of money in, like, new battery technology. Um, they're buying patents. Uh, they're buying up, like, huge portions of the grid for sort of, like, solar stuff. So I was kind of like, oil and gas companies really want to make money. And they seem to think that the great electrification is going to be the way to do that. And he's like, well, yeah, that, that's business. And I'm like, business, like, 
business knows what's up. <laughs> well, one of the most one of the most chilling passages in the book, I think it's coming out of the mouth of Charlie, where he's talking about how like scientists who were hired by these big energy companies and who you know work for them predicted the effects of fossil fuels on the climate with like pretty great accuracy. Yeah, uh, like 1977. Um, yeah. And yet yeah. these companies still went all in on extraction and the burning of fossil fuels just for the purposes of profit, even though they knew. That's yeah. haunting. And they, they, they spent millions and millions of dollars literally to have the outcome of that guy driving the lift saying, there's thousands of scientists who don't agree because they literally sowed the doubt. You know, they they spent a lot of time and effort to make sure that there was a question and to, you know, have people say things like, well, it's complicated. Even the scientists don't, they're not all on the same page, which like we know the scientists are 100, 99.9%, .9 like functionally 100% on the same page. But oil and gas companies, like all they want is for that guy to just be driving around thinking, this, you know, there's no consensus on this. Um, and so that is why, I mean, and the thing that is truly sickening, like I watched this conference presentation, um, it was on Zoom and it was like women in oil and gas and it was someone who I think worked for a consulting company because all the big consulting companies like are deeply part of the sort of energy space also. So someone from like Deloitte or Bain or, and she was, oh no, actually she, no, she was from oil, she was from oil field services, but she was saying something like, she, in a really chilling way, being like, well, our scientists, you know, are at kind of the forefront of this because, because essentially, like, they've known about it for a long time. And so we, we have a real opportunity to show how much we are part of driving innovation because we have known for so long and have been working for so long on this. And so basically turning that, like, foreknowledge and, like, really, like, literally evil obfuscation into something that's like actually a benefit because then it allows them to say, well, well, we're, 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 we're all on the same team guys. Like we're, we're working hard on this problem together. And just right. the, the cynicism of that is breathtaking. But then as a novelist, you're like, Oh my God, like, look at you shaping this narrative. <laughs> well, that's what Bunny does. I mean, Bunny's a gifted writer and she's, you know, recognized for her talent and is essentially tasked with helping to create these narratives. And there are gender dynamics and gender politics at play in the energy space, which is dominated by white men. Yes. Yeah, that's real. I mean, that's not just real in the world of your novel. That's got to be real in the world. Right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Especially in America. So overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly male, and yet women are making inroads, mostly white women, as mm -hmm. your book points out. And it's just interesting to me the ways in which female employees in the energy space are used primarily in like public facing roles or PR roles or these narrative building roles to trust wash, or I guess they call it greenwashing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, these businesses so that the general public sees them as benign or you know, as part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's something, a there's something cynical about that. And oh, yes. Sinister. Um, <laughs> there's a really great book I read called Gaslighted, How, oil, How the Oil and Gas Industry Shortchanges Women Scientists. Um, it's by a sociologist named Christine Williams. And she did this like really long survey of employees of some unnamed oil and gas company. And she found uh, like 
I mean, she really documents the sort of indignities of women in the industry while also holding that larger view that like the industry is, you know, harmful. But she really did a great job pointing out how like, yeah, the PR sort of opportunities for women or how, how, how women are deployed in these like really big public facing roles after something like, for example, Deepwater Horizon. And yeah, it's a great book that I really recommend sort of like parsing through these issues. Yeah, it's, I mean, not to paint with too broad of a brush, but it feels like it's easier to hear terrible news from women. It softens the, it softens the image of these companies. I can see mm-hmm. why they would make that choice, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, we'll put like a nice, pleasant, you know, woman yeah. out front to like talk us through the fact that like we're scrubbing down seagulls with toothbrushes and, you know, yeah. we're fixing things and we're going to battery and, you know, all this different stuff. But you know, Bunny works, this character Bunny works uh, in this business, in one of these roles and interacts with a lot of these women. And so you bring all of that to life really well. And she's also living in Texas, which is not Pennsylvania, which is where you worked in that temp job. That's sort of a corollary. I want to talk about Texas. Mm-hmm. I, I see that choice. I think it's a great choice, but I see that through the lens of like the fiction writer. You're like, if I'm doing this, I'm going to Texas. Because <laughs> uh, Texas really is emblematic of the American oil, you know, the American energy space. I mean, that's ground zero for it all, right? No, no mm-hmm. state is more identified with oil in the United States than Texas. Yes. And I'm wondering if you like what your experience there was. It's written very well, Houston. Like, did you go down and do like field research? Have you spent time there? Do you have family there? Or is this just all something that you were able to conjure through like YouTube videos? (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. I mean, that was one of my fears is that like Texans would be like, how dare you? Um, Because I, so my dad's family is from Houston um, for I guess generations, but he, and my dad was born there, but then he grew up in California and his, his parents moved. Um, so I grew up like hearing about Houston, knowing that there was like kind of a family connection there, but went there maybe once in my life, once or twice. And so, yeah, did not have like deep knowledge in any way. I, so at first, you know, when I was writing, I was YouTubing (laughs) and like red finning and reading a lot of like local journalism. Wait, is, is red finning a verb? That is a verb. <laughs> it is now. I mean, yeah. cause I told you I'm like so literal minded. And if I haven't been somewhere, I'm just like, well, how can I talk about it? Like I can't, I need to see it. And, and especially describing like homes, I was really, it really mattered to me, like what kind of like exurban versus urban versus like suburban feel and like what the houses look like. So I would go on Redfin and be like house built, after this year, but before this year, like tried to make it sort of line up with what I had in my mind. But then, you know, so I was writing that way. Then after I sold the book, I went to Houston and I went to Beaumont and Port Arthur. You know, I didn't spend a long time. I just did a lot of driving around, which was actually one of my favorite parts of writing this book was just driving around that part of Texas um, in the spring, which is a really nice time climate wise to, to be there. And spent some time in Houston, went to like an energy event, uh, went to the Petroleum Club of Houston and looked at the like Aramco room. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it was, it was amazing. I, I love the city of Houston. But yeah, one of the one of the things that's so interesting about that place is like, yeah, just how present and visible 
oil and gas are. I mean, the infrastructure is just everywhere. You drive through Texas City, um, you know, outside of Houston, kind of on the way to Galveston. And it's just like, I mean, it is, it's a city of just oil and gas infrastructure. It's like these big metal spires. I mean, it's sort of like awe-inspiring in some ways, but also just really like devastating, like right across from the Motiva refinery in Port Arthur, there's a playground. And, you know, Port Arthur has very high cancer rates and, you know, the human cost is like, is really visible also in like the built environment in a pretty remarkable way there. But then also just like the, so many people there are employed in oil and gas. It's so, it's just such a part of life. And so again, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you live somewhere that's removed from that either, you know, both physically and sort of like maybe professionally, you can kind of be like, well, yeah, oil and gas, like God, but then you go to a place where it is so like embedded in kind of the, the economic life of, of a, of a community. And yeah, it's like, I don't know. It seems like feels important to kind of see. Yeah. But that's, that was my recon. Okay. But did, and did you travel overseas as well to some of these places to see them before you wrote? I went to Azerbaijan after I had written the draft, but before I did the revision process. That was a trip that I couldn't really like justify or finance like before knowing that someone was going to actually publish the book. And so I did spend a few days, I walked 45 miles around Baku and sort of had like a map of places I wanted to go. One of the big challenges there is that the city has just changed so much in a fundamental way after the BTC pipeline was put in place and sort of this influx of oil wealth, like primarily to the regime. Um, but I had a, a reader from Azerbaijan who grew up there, was there in the 90s, sort of would have would have seen the same things that Bunny was seeing. And so I had her as like a, as a paid reader to just kind of go over and make sure that my like temporal stuff made sense and just kind of do like a gut check about because, yeah, like walking there now and seeing these huge, fanciful skyscrapers, like none of those were there in 1998. And Baku is pictured on the on the cover of the book? Yes, those are the flame towers, which completely dominate the skyline. And they were completed in, I think, 2012. Yeah, it's a great choice. Like as you read the book and you like start to come to grips with it and get into it, it's like, oh, like that that image is just a wash in oil and gas money. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? With those towers rising up from all this kind of old world architecture. There's yeah. something sort of uh, haunting about it. And something else I want to talk about is just the great way that you have created the character of Bunny on the page. We've talked about her a little bit so far. I mean, we know that she was uh, raised overseas and her, her father worked in the foreign service. And so she had this kind of peripatetic international childhood, private school, educated, privileged in that way, like very well-educated, very smart person. And she's also a consumer. <laughs> I feel like that was an explicit choice and one that resonates with like the deeper themes of the book. I could not help but note the consumptive part of her <laughs> like she's lusty if i can put yes. it that way is that is that you know like this is a, she's i was yes. gonna say slutty but i don't want to sound you know gross <laughs> I, like i will put it in air quotes and i think like in a way that's charming and very human you know and 
I don't know. She's very likable. She likes, I mean, and I know some people don't like her. I'm sure some people won't. I found her likable and human. I think she, uh, she's a great heroine and she likes to have a cigarette. She's constantly tracking food mm-hmm. in a way that I find recognizable. That's kind of how I am. Like, I'm like, ah, like I, you know, especially as I get in the middle age, I'm like, okay, what's this going to do to me? <laughs> like, but I have some of that. And then she's very aware of brand names. Like you're constantly in a way that like, how do I, how do I feel? Like I start to get anxious a little bit. It's like, oh my God, like the name of this dress, these shoes, she's noticing like, oh, those are Jimmy Choo's. And mm-hmm. I'm just like, oh Jesus, like how to walk through life and see all this stuff. Like that would be exhausting to me. And yet it's very normal <laughs> for people to do that, to kind of track what other people are wearing, to track the calorie counts of food right? Like yeah. they, these are explicit choices. And I think they have to do with these larger themes of consumption that dominate this book. Yeah. I mean, I think both consumption, but then also, you know, Bunny is very, the, my sort of sympathies for Bunny are rooted in the fact that she's like very kind of caught up in and part of the sort of the femininity trap and a certain kind of socialization that is like absolutely rooted in sort of like white patriarchal beauty standards and expectations for women and norms. Um, and I mean, uh, part of that, that's definitely sort of rooted in, so there's, I have like kind of an anger about that, that I'm working out by showing Bunny as someone who's just like uncomplicatedly part of that, even though sometimes she sort of, you can tell she wishes she didn't care so much about this, but it's just very much part of her, the way she moves through the world and thinks about herself. And a lot of that, you know, I t- when she's very early in the book, when she's 15, like she's like reading all these magazines. And I was so, like when I was 15, I read all the magazines and I like dog-eared and I had lists of like clothes that I wanted and I schemed to find ways to like get clothes and I knew all the bags. And I mean, part of that is like, I think, I think some kinds of teenage girls in whatever environment they're in, they're going to have whatever their sort of version of that is. Um, you know, the styles might be different, but the, the want is there sort of like the want to have things that other people have, the want to fit in, the want to look a certain way that is like valued in your sort of community. And because I, you know, I went to boarding school, which was paid for by the federal government. It's not, I, it's not a school that I would have gone to otherwise. It wasn't like, you know, it's like my parents would not have been like, yes, you should go to a boarding school. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was very, it was sort of like seeing that among boarding schools, it is somewhat like more economically, economically diverse than some of them, but still it is predominantly and and includes some like people of like extreme extreme like generational wealth and just yeah I remember sort of the seeing these kinds of bags that like I had never seen before or like suddenly seeing this kind of look that now it was like oh well I need to figure out how to like look like that too meanwhile you're reading these like teen magazines that are like how to lose 10 pounds in 10 days or like drive him wild by like removing all the hair from your body. And I mean, and just like straightforwardly, like incredibly misogynistic public discourse about women and women's bodies. And, you know, Monica Lewinsky, people were being like, she's fat, you know, 
I that's so formative and it takes so long to like really break out of that. I still am not out of it. You know, I like sometimes have two glasses of wine and like buy shoes on Instagram because I'm like, these will make me happy and be useful. <laughs> um, fill, fill the God hole. Just yes. Like, yes. Stuff. <laughs> Stuff. So yeah. I'm, I, that is the way that I still am like very allied with money, even though sometimes I'm like, I'm working really hard to not see my own body in the same way I once did. But that, that consciousness is still there. So when I see a photo of myself, like, I'm raising daughters, so I'm like, I am working so hard to be like, like, look at me, like, I look great, I love myself, like, it does, you know, it doesn't matter. But like, I still have that voice in my head that's like, your arm looks fat, your arm looks fat in that photo. Like, I have that too. <laughs> yes. I'm, it's not I, only women, it's no. everybody is sort of like in this, is can be put in this like box, um, for sure. It's really hard to not be in it. Yeah, I mean, you know, and like some part of me, like I can get really brutal, I'm just like, yeah, you just look horrible. You're getting old. <laughs> but Brett, Deal but, with it. But look, you're, you're so handsome. You know, you don't, it don't. Uh, I'm hiding. You know, I, you put this microphone here because I'm hiding. I feel like I'm like, <laughs> my jowls are coming in. I'm like, I got to hide behind this microphone. I'm not even kidding. I know. I you could know. just be like. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Intermittent fasting. I mean, like this stuff. But I think like, you know, I also in a way like disciplined. I, I, I think it's okay to be disciplined about wanting to be healthy. You know, there's ways for it to yo-yo back in the other direction where it's like, I'm so self-accepting that like, you know, I don't care. And that's not the answer either. So no, I don't know I'm, what it is. I'm, I'm like, I just, I'm reading this book called Fat Talk by Virginia Soulsmith. It's a great book. I'm like, I'm just happy that there's people out there that I can look to and just be like, I, it doesn't have to be like this. Um, Cause it is so, I mean, just the toxicity of the like body image stuff among like teen girls of my era was right just it's different it's way different so for women. it's way different for even though men feel it it's i just had a convert i have two sisters so i just had a conversation with both of them about this not too long ago we will sometimes do like a full like three three-way call we're like we're all on the phone Aww. so i'm i'm outnumbered that's, that's so <laughs> and nice they're just like you don't understand you know like i'm like okay <laughs> I've learned to just like listen at that point, but they're right. You know, it's different for women. The pressures are way more intense, you know, and maybe that's why I picked up on some of it. Like growing up with like deal a meal. I'm a little, you know, I'm older than you are, but Richard Simmons deal a meal was in my wow. house as a kid. The oh thigh God. master, we had a thigh master. <laughs> I think I've even used a thigh master if I'm being honest. So, and by the way, right now I want to, I'll confess to something. This shit is all over Instagram and it drives me up the wall. And I keep getting advertised. It's like they can read your mind. Do you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. I don't know how they know this about me, but they're advertising to me this thing that you put in your mouth that you chew on that like strengthens your jaw and improves your jawline. <laughs> oh, no. It's like a giant ball. I mean, it, oh, you, no. it, yeah. And guess what? I've come close. I've lingered on those videos. I'm don't like, maybe I need it. this. Yeah. No, don't do yeah. it. I'm trying. I'm trying to stay strong, but it's hard. You know, that's incredible. I do not get creams. served that. I do not. I that must be like a man, a man one, like a cis yeah, man, like because you want to, you want to have like the, the crow magnon jaw. You want to have it like, <laughs> and then like you get into the website and they have these pictures of these before and afters. They have to be doctored, but these dudes actually have like bulging jaw muscles. You know, like they're actually ripped in the jaw. It's so <laughs> fucked up.
it's very and like joe rogan is into it so like you can just imagine yeah whole cultures thousands yeah. of men all over america chewing on a ball in their uh you know basement or whatever trying soon, to get a, soon the deaths will be starting from yeah, exactly this thing you could accidents. choke the choking hazard yeah nightmarish but that's the world we live in right now and you know it's so it's so interesting to think about and sort of depressing to think about how these things can be so top of mind so for so many of us but when you sort of juxtaposition them against like oh you know like millions of fish washing up on the texas shore because like the ocean is no longer hospitable to them you know these larger sort of macro hyper object problems and we're sitting around worrying about like our jaw lines it's a little bit absurd that's right? what they want that's what the oil and gas companies want you to do they're, they are financing. By the way, these, you know, whatever you plastic. call them. They're made of plastic. They're made of plastic, So they're getting paid both ways, as yes. usual. You know, these fucking people are so good at getting paid. That's what they've mastered. But before I let you go, I want to talk to you a little bit about process stuff because so many of the people who listen to my show are writerly. And I know from talking to you before, and I should say too, that I am so delighted to get a chance to talk to you with undivided attention during the daytime because you, as I recall, came to my house the last time you did this show, back when I was doing it in person. Mm -hmm. And I was so fucking fried from my job <laughs> that for the only time in the history of this show, I had to be like, Lydia, <laughs> I can't do this. Didn't I do that? Am I remembering? We did end up, we recorded afterward. You were really nice and you were like, let's, let's do that again. Let's, we'll, we'll do it on, you're like, normally I don't do, you know, virtual, but we, so we had two versions of the conversation and it was great. But I, I had to stop because my brain was so gone. Like that is a level of exhaustion. Like, you know what I'm saying? Cause you can power through anything, especially mm -hmm. somebody's in your house, you're on tour. Like, I literally remember sitting there and like, I couldn't process what you were saying because I was so <laughs> fried, which feels somehow thematically related to the concerns of your book. But I know from that conversation and just from, you know, social media stuff that you're a mom. I know, I mean, this is sort of also related to your first book, The Golden State, you know, mm -hmm. like where you're writing about motherhood. And I know that parenthood and maybe motherhood even more so makes it hard for somebody to or harder for somebody to lead a creative life and to carve out time to do things like write a book, which are so intensive. Like, so let's talk about how you did it. I want to say too, I'm, I'm recalling a tweet where you were talking about Excel spreadsheets. Yes. So I do keep a do spreadsheet. You, yeah. Okay. But I mean like necessarily so like you have to be sort of psycho on the level of discipline or at least in the terms of like, how intensively you use the time that you do have to get work done. If you're going to finish a book, especially a book that is as intellectually and narratively robust as mobility, because oh, thank you. this is a, this is a big engrossing thinky novel. You know, it's not something you just sort of like toss off like during like one residency or something, you know, <laughs> thank you so much. Um, I, it's funny with the golden state, I had like a pretty limited timeline that I was like, I need to finish this. And then I have to like get a job pretty much. Uh, and so I did try to write every day. I didn't necessarily write every day, but I tried to, and I had a part-time job that almost paid for childcare. And I had only one kid at that time. So I had the sort of like, 
I said, I'm going to pay for, you know, the full day of childcare, even though I'm only getting paid for like half the day. And I had to really like wrestle with that because there's a lot of built in stuff like, well, if you're not getting paid, why do you need childcare? Like, what are you doing? Now I'm over that. I don't care. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, that's my business. Fuck you. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then when I was starting to write this book, I now had a second kid. We moved to Portland because we couldn't afford to live where we lived and have two kids and have me, you know, not get paid all the time. Um, and I had sort of gotten my stride, was trying to write every day in Portland. They were in preschool. Then the pandemic started. And then I just didn't write for like months. And then I realized that I was never going to, if I waited till like I felt like it while in this sort of like kids home 700 hours a day, online kindergarten, no rest, like no breaks. Like I was never going to just open the document and work on it again. So I talked to my husband and I was like, I have to leave. And I rented a $72 a night cabin 40 miles away. And I went there for three nights. And that's when I wrote the Greece part actually, because I, my dad lives in Greece. I lived in Greece when I was a kid. It's a really place that I care, you know, love so much. And it was like, I hadn't written in so long. I was so miserable from just like the months of like really intense like covid life and i just was like bunny's going to greece <laughs> bunny's bunny's Good gonna for have, bunny. bunny's having a vacation and that's when yeah that part got written and then i waited seven more months without opening the document and then i went again to another cabin so that my pandemic like writing practice was completely different but that's how i finished the book i just went like four or five times to like very short little just me complete dirtbag lifestyle and like wrote as much as I could. And that's how I kind of managed to get to a point where I had a draft. But I know there are people out there who like, I mean, you like wrote a beautiful novel and like are also like doing intensive caregiving and working. And so, I mean, I think everyone just sort of has to figure out what they can stand given their circumstances and temperament. And some people's temperament will allow them to like work while their kids in the house and like, just be like, you guys play, like, don't bother me. I'm writing. I admire those people so much. If I know my kids are in the house, I can like, there's some kinds of work I can do, but like working on this book was not one of them. No, I just was no, like, yeah. I can't like, and so I just didn't. And then, but then I got to a point that was like, no, I'm not going to throw away the work that I've already done on this because like, like I got to figure out something that will let me with my temperament and my circumstances, like do more of this book. And so that, for, for that. <laughs> well, I believe you call it your fleeing strategy. Yes, so for people fleeing. at home, if, if you need a shorthand, it's just, you can adopt Lydia Kiesling's fleeing strategy where you rent an Airbnb 40 miles away for three and four days at a time. And you just go work intensively and I get it. And especially since you've had all this time off where you're sort of growing frustrated and this, you know, I would imagine the narrative is sort of accruing, yeah. you know, within you that when you finally get the chance to write, you actually get quite a lot done. Yeah. And, and weird things happen. Like stuff comes out that you're just like, Oh, okay. Well, I guess that was in there. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> uh, I know you got to go soon, but before I let you go, I do want to acknowledge the fact that this is, what is this? The debut title on the crooked media, mm -hmm. like Zando crooked media reads. Yep. With okay. Zando. So cro crooked media is a company founded by, a bunch of Obama, uh, Obama administration uh, speechwriters like John yeah. Favreau. Like I, I 
blanking on all the names. John like, Favreau, Tommy Vitor, John Lovett, Dan yes. Pfeiffer. Yeah. All those guys. And I know that and I'm a fan of uh, their work and was thinking to myself as I was reading, because as I was reading, I couldn't help but note that Bunny is a fan of Barack Obama. He is heroic to her. Mm -hmm. The question I have for you is, was he heroic to her before they read it? Oh, yes. I mean, yeah. No, because I mean, I'm just, I mean, I couldn't help but wonder, like, if for some reason, because her, her politics are a little bit complicated uh, and a little bit opaque, like, I don't even know she knows what they are. You know no, what I'm saying? Bunny is not some... They're embryonic, I would say. <laughs> yeah, but so the point is that she could have easily been like lukewarm on Obama or like, mm. you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, she's not like a diehard. So the fact that she was like, Obama is heroic to me, that that probably helped the cause well, <laughs> as these guys were reading it, right? I mean, if, if you would have been like, yeah, Obama, yeah, he's kind of uh, well, then, toast, bored. No, but then at the end, you know, she meets someone. Well, I mean, she hears from a couple different sources like, well, this is what Obama did. You know, these are like things that happened under the Obama administration. So, yeah, that's, I mean, it's very meta because like Bunny is really drawn to like groups of men and like wants their approval. And I'm like... I, well, I am now being published by, like, in some say. ways, like a group of men, um, right. and I, you know, seek their approval for this book. But, I mean, I did have that, like, my my intention was that the book would, like, be a critique of that sort of just, like, very basic, like, very common sort of liberal, like, oh my God, this is so great, you know, which I like felt at that time. Yeah. But, but also, you know, I think time i think the message is that like no politician should just be seen as like oh they're great and whatever they do is going to be good because there is no person for whom that is true and the u.s government is a massive force i mean the u.s government and the like military industrial complex is its own sort of like hyper object and is responsible for like the great many great like war crimes of the modern age so I have, you know, Bunny doesn't know that, but people who Bunny meets do know that. And yeah, it gets very meta when I just think about the like, the whole like the sort of publishing structure. But I am, yeah. I'm just, you know, I'm glad to be published. And like Emily Bell is my editor. She was my editor for the Golden State. She's been like an incredible supporter of me um, and my work. And Zando and Crooked Media have been great and supportive. And I'm just like, well, I hope somebody buys this book. <laughs> So yeah. thank you I mean, for helping listen. me do that, Brad. Well, the, the, but just so you know, this podcast, also a hyper object, though most people don't realize it. It's tentacles wrap around the uh, globe. Influence, <laughs> influence, influence things that uh, even I can't possibly imagine. But I think you landed in a great spot. I think that this book does like a noble service. It did for me, you know, like humanizing these issues, making them palatable it's just it's more fun <laughs> to consider the awfulness of global oil and climate change when you get to stop in greece with bunny you know and like hang out and smoke cigarettes with her <laughs> like, it's just a way in you know and it's maybe a way to go more deeply into these things than to read an article in the new york times not that they're you know not that the new york times article is without merit but you know what I'm getting at. We need so, all the things. Yeah. We need all the things. All and the things. This is a very deep dive in so many ways. And 
also totally entertaining and engrossing. And I congratulate you on that. Are you working on another book or are you just enjoying this one? Only in my mind. I'm stewing. I'm stewing, but not writing. Any hints? Like just even like really like broad stroke hints just about... As a neighborhood story about old women. <laughs> that, that's perfect. That's perfect. Just so that like, you know, when eventually it publishes, we can be like, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. <laughs> a neighborhood story about old women, which isn't the worst title in the world. You know, if you <laughs> want to consider that. Uh, but it's great to talk to you and you. Uh, I love the book and I wish you well with it and with whatever comes next. Thank you so much, Brad. It is truly an honor to be here. All right, folks, there we have it. That was my conversation with Lydia Kiesling. Her new novel is called Mobility, available now from Crooked Media Reads. You can find Lydia on the internet at lydiakiesling.com. Follow her on social media. I believe she is on Twitter and Instagram. One more time, the book is called Mobility. It is superb. Go get your copy immediately. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. If you want to join the Other People Patreon community, help keep this show rolling, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to get some Other People merchandise, t-shirts, sweatshirts, what have you, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Don't forget to sign up for my free once-a-week email newsletter at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. And if you would like to do me a small favor, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It helps the show in the algorithm. It helps with the rankings. It helps the program find new listeners. If you have feedback for me, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. And finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I will read it to you if you want. Once again, the book is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up next on The Other People Show on Friday, I will be digging into the archives for another flashback episode and then on Sunday I will be back here talking to someone but as of right now it is TBD so it's going to be a surprise I can't tell you but there will be an episode on Sunday all right all right <laughs>